the Triple Zeros. I'm your host, Josh Buckhalter. Great show lined up for you, man. Fresh off of the Championship Sunday, the Green Bay Packers and the Tennessee Titans fought hard, fought a very had a very good seasons, both of them, but ultimately fell short as the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers will be moving on to face each other on Super Sunday in two weeks. Now, uh, last week, kind of gave you a preview. We told you what we were gonna, what I expected the outcomes to be, and it kind of held true. Now, before we get into any of all that, though, follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, at Josh G. Buck. Follow me on Twitter, at Josh G. Buck. On Facebook, at Jukes Jumps. The website is jukesandjumpers.wordpress.com, and the email address is jukesjumps at gmail.com. The first thing, though, about this playoff match. Now, it kind of went out. The, the end results were uh, what I expected in the first game. The second game, I didn't expect the outcome to be this way, but I probably should have because it literally was a repeat of a previous matchup. So I'm not sure why I was I picked against it, but I, maybe I just thought that there was, I believed what came out of the mouth of one of the players. Now, start off with the early game. That was the Chiefs and the Titans. The Chiefs took the Titans to town 35-24. Now, the, the, the game was nowhere near as close as that final score would suggest. And it's funny because it actually was the Titans who jumped out to their early lead, jumping out to a lead of 10-0 and then later on 17-7. However, they would trail 21-17 at the half. So just to give you a clue of how quickly this Chiefs offense can strike and how dangerous they really are, no matter how well you think you've played to this point. Patrick Mahomes, the MVP last year, completed 65% of his passes, 294 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. He had eight carries of 53 yards and a touchdown that I think really – solidified his position as just the best. I mean, if you didn't think so already, you had to see it there. You know, you got the running ability of Lamar, which is just pretty natural and something that I don't think any other quarterback has ever been able to replicate. Closest has been Michael Vick. And even Mike Vick himself has said that Lamar is him 2.0. You have Deshaun Watson, but he's more of a scramble to throw guy as well. And I think you expect him to run a little bit more. Mahomes is a pocket passing slinger guy where he runs. It literally is just to make the extend the passing play that much more. Eight carries, 53 yards in that touchdown. And that touchdown was one where he was working the sideline. He broke a tackle to get in there. And it just showed that he had the toughness, a toughness that I think sometimes you don't associate or we haven't associated with the Kansas City Chiefs in the past, especially with how some of those teams have bowed out, um, even under Andy Reid. So it was a, a that play kind of encapsulated the difference that I think he's made, that he's brought to this team. Clearly, they reached the Super Bowl for the first time in 50 years. But for him, I think it just kind of solidifies his place as the best quarterback in the NFL today. I gave you his stats. He threw five passes. Well, he threw more than five passes. But Tyreek Hill caught five of those passes for 67 yards and two touchdowns. Sammy Watkins, though, was the big play here. Now, maybe that was due to the attention that the Titans were trying to play to Tyreek Hill over the top, you know, bracket him a little bit. But Watkins came away with seven catches, 114 yards, and one touchdown. Now, people forget how talented Sammy Watkins is because of how much he's had to play a complimentary role first going to Los Angeles from Buffalo. You know, in Buffalo, he dealt with all the injuries. But in Los Angeles, it was a, a, game, a game plan that was oftentimes built around running back Todd Gurley, and rightfully so. But that took away a lot of the passing opportunities from guys like Sammy Watkins, and even then, he still had a good year. It just wasn't the number one wideout that I think a lot of people pegged him to be when he came out of college. So to see him have that game, I mean, it's not surprising. It just kind of, it's one of those, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that dude's pretty damn good. So he he balled out. The silent member, though, was one Travis Kelsey. He had three catches, 30 yards. Now, 
that's contributing, but it's not nearly the line that we are used to seeing from one Travis Kelsey, who operates more as a receiver than anything. But he did have two key blocks. One of them was on the Tyreek Hill touchdown, and the other came on uh, a catch from, I believe, from Damian Williams. Williams had 19 touches from 80, for 89 yards, and that's a guy who I've been kind of talking about the past couple of weeks where I know it's cliche to talk about when they get X amount of carries and this team wins or whatever the case may be, but there is definitely a, co- a correlation between him getting 12-plus carries and them having success. Now, clearly they are a pass-first team, so maybe it's just more of, a, of an indicator that they were already in the lead in that game. But I just think that he gives them the ability to give enough in the pass and the run where they don't have to do it all the time, but they can count on him to get the plays. Now, we saw him go in the doghouse at multiple times throughout this year between he and LaShawn McCoy, who was inactive on Sunday. But I think that that's a, a good changeup for them to have in Williams. They're they're going to ride or die with Patrick Mahomes, but I think it's a really good changeup for them to have. And one has shown that when they need to, they can lean on him and he can produce for them. The Titans, I think everybody was kind of waiting. I know I was. But anticipating the, the, under sh- the other shoe falling on the Cinderella story, it's kind of sad. But, you know, you kind of predicted it with them relying so heavily on Derrick Henry the past few weeks, less than 100 yards, 88, and I think 70-something the week before that for Ryan Tannehill. And Derrick Henry had 190 last week. But if a team could find a way to slow him down, and it's odd because the game set up for Kansas for Tennessee to, to, to execute their game plan and just salt it away with Henry. But the quick strike ability of the Chiefs found – the Titans had the Titans finding themselves down, and that's just not a situation that they're built for. When you had to rely on Tannehill, even though he played well, 67% completion, 209 yards, two touchdowns, no picks, it just isn't their game plan, and that's that threw off everything that they like to do as a team. The three-headed monster of weaponry that he has outside of Henry, obviously, Tannehill has at his disposal. A.J. Brown, Corey Davis, and John U. Smith combined had 11 catches, for 154 scoreless yards. So the only two touchdowns that were thrown from Tannehill came to uh, Ferkser, the tight end, and the backup offensive lineman Dennis Kelly, who became the heaviest person to catch a touchdown in the playoffs. little fun fact on that. But you just go back to Tennessee leading the game 10-0 and then 17-7 and still trailing at the half 21-17. Two quick touchdowns by the by the Chiefs got them the lead and the momentum. And at that moment when the Titans went down and kicked that field goal to go 10-0. You kind of just felt like, ooh, I don't think you wanted to do that. And that's when the Chiefs came down and answered with a touchdown. But the Titans got another score themselves. So you felt like maybe they found a way to regain momentum. Nah, son. Nah, son. It just got worse from there. And I think that that's ultimately what um, doomed that, that is what doomed them. What most people, including myself, expected to doom them is them having to play from behind and play catch up is just not what they were built to do. And to see it play out that way i don't think it's too surprising it just it is it's rough because they had a really good story going into this season and it was i like mike Vrabel, so to see him have that success was was nice but man again not surprising when you go up against an mvp no less but when you go up against patrick mahomes and the chiefs it's it's gonna be a task so i'm not sure exactly what people expected i kind of been have been predicting it for two weeks prior took a little bit longer but that's what ultimately happened. The, the Chiefs uh, triumphed over the Titans, and it was the classic matchup of uh, prolific passer versus 
stout defense and chug and run game. And when we had that in the second matchup to the Green Bay Packers and the San Francisco 49ers, this was a matchup of week 12. Both of these games were matchups or rematches, by the way. But the Packers was a rematch of their week 12, I believe it was, against the Niners. And they got smacked in that game 38, 37 to 8. Well, the Niners scored 37 points again. This time, though, the Packers did manage to score 20. Now, a lot of that came in catch-up mode and garbage time. They scored, I believe, 10 straight points at the end of that one. The Niners led this game 27 to nothing at half. It was over at halftime. Like, I know that we've seen Aaron Rodgers come back as a Bears fan. Trust me, I've seen him come back from, like, triple di- double-digit uh, deficits before at, from ha- at halftime on one leg and win just last year in the opener. This one didn't have that same kind of feel. He was getting harassed all night and beat up. And his final stat line, 79% completion, 326 yards, two touchdowns, two picks. Seems all right, but he also had three fumbles. He only lost one of them, but you just saw him harass the entire night in the pocket. Again, this is an offensive line that I gave so much credit for prior to the game. But that pass rush from the 49ers, the investment that they made in those in, in the Nick Bosa this year, Solomon Thomas as a backup and a, ro- a rotational piece. You got D Ford that they got from Kansas City, you got so much going that it just overwhelmed the Packers' offensive line and shut down everything that they were trying to do. You had Aaron Jones get 12 carries, 56 yards, and a touchdown. He also had five catches for 27 yards and a touchdown. But it was a very concentrated attack between he and Devontae Adams. Adams had nine catches, 138 yards, and a touchdown. This was just – it was a rough, rough outing. And it kind of reminded me of the Texans where it's, again, a concentrated – attack and if you can shut down one or two guys then you pretty much have them bottled up because you can contain everything else nobody else can win consistently enough to beat you uh interesting side note this was the fourth fewest rushing yards green bay had in a game in 2019 another interesting side note one that hurts stings to the core raheem moser who had 29 carries for 220 yards four touchdowns in this game former bear that's right 2016 he was a bear but He's been cut by multiple teams, and also, that's just the way life goes. You know, not one that I'm going to dwell on, but man, he was a bear, and that that's that's harsh. That hurts to see. 220 yards. At some point, tackle. Tackle the man. Load up the box and make him beat you over the top. I don't know how you don't load up and put put all 11 in the box and make Jimmy beat you. I don't know how they allowed this man to get 29 carries. They just they stopped caring. 27-0, that's what I mean. 27-0 at the half, they had already checked out. That comeback was the 49ers enough gas. They had enough rope there that they could just completely take their foot off the gas and coast the rest of the way and basically did just that. But 220 yards and four touchdowns. That's, that's embarrassing for a defense that had become quite formidable. But we, as we saw, they were formidable against the pass. They're much better against the pass than they are against the run. That is two completely different monsters. Another interesting outcome of this one was a little bit of a Twitter battle between Darrell Revis and Richard Sherman, two all-pro corners. Revis, you know, spent time with the Jets. He was drafted by the Jets, spent time with the Patriots, won a Super Bowl, spent time with the Buccaneers. And what happened was Revis was calling out Sherman for not being as good as he says he is. He says he's a man corner, does not travel, and therefore cannot be mentioned among the greats. And this really is the quintessential matchup of zone versus man coverage. And it can really be what you're doing in front of it that matters a lot. It does matter the, the skill set of the player. Now, Rich uh, Sherman has had some success in man. He's also been beaten in man. Revis, we've seen, he's Revis Island. He was put out there by himself to lock a man down. And when you go to the tail of the tape, it's seems skewed in the service, but when you dig into it a little bit deeper, you get to understand it. So, starting off with Darrell Revis, seven Pro Bowls, four, pro, four, 
four first-team All-Pros, one Super Bowl, 29 career picks for Richard Sherman. Oh, and the Super Bowl. I said that. Richard Sherman, five-time Pro Bowler, three first-team All-Pros, one Super Bowl, played in another, and is about to play in a third. He led the league in interceptions in 2013 with eight, and he's the active interceptions leader right now with 35. He's also a fifth-round pick. Derby was a first-round pick. Now, I think that the interception thing is the first thing that jumps off. Sherman already has more picks than Revis did when his career was over. However, being that Revis was the, the lockdown guy that he was, it, nobody threw at him. So you can't, it, he had 29 and people didn't throw at him. I think we saw a stretch there and we saw with Revis too, where he kind of had a lull in his performance, but we saw a stretch with Sherman prior to the ACL injury where he was kind of falling off, which is how he ended up in San Francisco in the first place. But the part that I think kind of gets back is obviously the two more Pro Bowls for Revis and the extra All-Pro, but the fifth-round pick for Sherman. Revis has the pedigree where I don't know if you expect him to be the, the Hall of Fame player that he is, and according to Pro Football Reference, Richard Sherman is not quite at Hall of Fame level yet. That's fine. We're talking about who would you take in, in the way that the league is going? I, I, I find it hard to take, to pick against the ball hawking Richard Sherman, even despite everything that Darrell Reeves done, has done in his career. I know that's, that's probably blasphemous to say, and I would get lit up in the Twitterverse as I'm, as most are wont to do when they say things like this, but I think I would have to take Richard Sherman just because of the length. You can't teach that. He is a ball hawk, clearly. Now, Revis is not averse to taking the ball away. I'm just saying that the edge goes to Sherman, obviously. And then going to his third Super Bowl at this point, it obviously matters scheming, like I said, and what you have going on in front of them. But I guess I think maybe it's just the the love of the underdog in me that just likes the fifth round pick and Richard Sherman being an all pro three times and a couple other times as a second teamer that gives wants to give him the nod. This is tough. It's tough. It comes down to man versus zone. And I think I would run some zone. And if I'm in the blitz package, I'm running zone blitz. Oh, man. It's it's a tough one. It's really a tough conversation. And I think it's one that is a fun one. I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer. Again, I think it's really style of preference. But both of them are highly accomplished. And it was a, a Twitter battle that I think we didn't know we needed, but we definitely needed. And I was glad to see it unfold the way it did between two guys who were just talking. You know, Keenan Allen came out and, and, and just gave it Susan's really didn't take a side. Just said it was a difference in playing them both. And I think that's what I'm saying here is it's just a difference in styles. But he said when you went against Revis, he didn't say anything. He was almost stoic. He said that you would talk to him just a regular, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? You know, let's have a good battle today. Nothing. He said it kind of messed with you because you just didn't know where he was at. He said Sherman, on the other hand, it, it wasn't necessarily to say that Sherman was easy to deal with, just say how different it was. But he said, Sherman, you can't let him get a play because he's not going to let you not hear the end of that one. You know, you're going to you're going to hear about that for the rest of the game. And he says that it was just it, that too is mentally taxing. It's just two different styles. And both of those were great guys. And to just appreciate. I think that's what. I'm ultimately getting at here too is that they let them battle it out. That's for them to decide and for the rest of us peasants to just admire from afar. Cause at their peaks, there, I don't think there's any better at man and coverage than Real Revis and in the zone than, uh, Richard Sherman. We could talk about where Stefan Gilmore falls in that right now, 
But man, the legacy, I don't think that he has, I don't think it still compete, compares with either one of these guys. Revis Island and then Richard Sherman was a key, the central, the face of the Legion of Boom. So that's just one to, uh, to keep under your hat and debate for those long summer days when there's no football going on and we're all trying to get through the off season. And then to wrap up the NFL segment, the NFL said that the viewership was down from Sunday's championship game. The 49ers and the Packers championship game averaged under 44 million, 43.5, just under 43.6 million viewers. While last year's game between the Rams and Saints averaged 44.08. Now, I would say that part of this is the fact that that game, the Rams-Saints game, went into OT. But also you had a little bit of the L.A. factor and you had the New Orleans factor. Those are two bigger fan, not fan bases, but two, I don't know, because Green Bay has a fan base that's kind of wild and the 49ers do too. But the OT definitely had to have helped. It, the, the tightness of it, the Packers being down 27-0 probably contributed a lot to a lot of the viewers going down. Now, I'm not sure exactly how they track this throughout the entire game, if this is part of the game, if this is just at the beginning or what. But I would have to imagine that the blowout status of it early on contributed heavily to how few people ultimately ended up watching the game. I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit of NBA action, starting off with the Houston Rockets. Now, last episode I played, or I didn't play, I talked to you about how Jimmy Butler wrote in the Players' Tribune about how James Harden is the most unguardable player in the NBA today. Well, I also mentioned how Harden has had a streak of having not the most efficient performances and how the Rockets have suffered for it. Last six games coming into Monday night's action against the Thunder, they had lost their last, uh, in their last six, they were, Rock, James Harden was shooting 33% from the floor, 27% from three, and the Rockets were two and four. Well, they lost again to the Oklahoma City Thunder, and in this game, James Harden shot 31% from the floor and 5% from three. He was 9-29 from the floor, 1-17-3. He still had 29-9-6, so you're going to have the people who support him saying he still got 29 points because he knows how to get buckets. But, dude, 1-17 of 17 from the—1-17. of 17, People kill Russell Westbrook from, from, for his terrible shooting. If he shot 17 threes and only hit one, they'd never let him touch the basketball again. I'm, and I'm not, this is not even the organization. This is fans. Fans would run up and take the ball out of Russ's hands and never let him touch it again. I don't know where on earth— Mike D'Antoni is, and that really begs the question, how much of this is to blame on Mike D'Antoni? But before I talk about that, I have to address that Karan Butler said that teammates, it's no fun to be around Russ or to be around James Harden because the supporting cast just gets to stand around and watch, and there's not many opportunities. When you're just there, when you can shoot and you know you can get buckets, but you're just there as a spacer, it kind of takes away some of the excitement and it takes away some of the effort that you put into it. It does bear mentioning that Daniel House and Ben McElmore have had some of the best seasons of their careers, the best seasons of his career in both of their cases, honestly. So that may not hold all of the water. And Butler, I think, received a few of these performances from Harden, too. So he might not be completely unbiased in this. But also, Russ, and he he did say two guys, including Russ in his his analogy or in his 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 breakdown of what could be wrong here with the Rockets but Russ is not suffering in that same stretch that Harden was struggling through Russ is averaging 32.7 assists and eight boards and he's shooting 53 percent from the floor 25 percent from three which is actually an improvement and 73 70 percent from the from the free throw line now I say all that to say this how much of this is D'Antoni's fault you bring in so much talent 
Case uh, CP3 came in and looked well, looked, played well next to James Harden, but it didn't work out. Got rid of CP3. Bring in Russ. Russ is playing well next to James Harden, but it's not working out. And now you have the stats being in Harden. Now I am. I agreed with Jimmy that Harden is unguardable, but being so perimeter based, his game lends itself to moments like these, nights like these, where you have one for seventeen performance where it's putrid. I kind of miss the old Euro step Harden where a lot of what he did was focused on how he got to the basket in a multitude of ways and hit you with that side to side real quick. His game is transformed. I would like to see D'Antoni Ray wrangle him in. I would have to say it's 50-50. And it would be mostly D'Antoni's fault if he didn't put so much in James Harden's hands and James Harden refuses to kind of, I don't want to say relinquish, but kind of learn to adapt and adjust his game to be more conducive to winning. It's the selfish nature of it that, like Karan is saying, keeps other guys disinterested and keeps them from getting all the way involved. That right there kind of highlights the pursuit that people, the the, the thought that people have of him, of James Harden, that all he cares about is winning for himself. It's hard to argue when you look at this, this current streak and see that he hasn't really adjusted. Now, granted, he's led the league in assists and he's had the triple doubles and all of that stuff. There might not be a better team or better duo between Harden and Russ, though, of stats not always being created equally. And you can take that how you will. I'll break that down another time because Russ, again, I am a Russ fan, but that's definitely something that not all stats are created equal because Harden's, like Russ's, don't seem to equate to winning when it matters most. And so maybe then, maybe if they finally figure out how to actually get uh if they find a way to actually get the two of them on the same page they will be able to actually work through the 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 lulls that you have in the games between the two of them i just think that ultimately it'll work out but you've got to get a little bit more diversity in the offense you got to get a little bit more inclusion for the other guys that's just from the outside in. And of course, they've, their system was work for them. So who am I to say? But I definitely think that they would benefit a lot from being able to count on other guys in clutch time than just standing around and watching James and hoping James is able to create something for them. Going to the East Coast, Kyrie Irving is back in the news for talking because Kyrie likes to talk. <laughs> um, he says today, got in front of the headline, Kyrie compares himself to Martin Luther King Jr., and at first glance, it's like, oh, my Lord, you know, he just recently compared himself to Dr. J by saying that it's no coincidence that the last time that the Nets won anything, they were being led by Julius Irving, clearly a nod to his last name. Now, whatever, they weren't spelled the same. What? We're not. Whatever. We're not even getting into that right now. The part that that that, that threw it off today was it's Martin Luther King Day. So when I saw the headline, I was like, Lord have mercy, Kyrie, what are you doing? But then I read it. And what he said was. He didn't speak. He wasn't saying anything to anybody. And the media was still running with different theories and notions as to why it was that he wasn't talking. And they were still blaming him for things and saying that he was at fault for this, that, and third. And so he brought up the equivocation to Martin Luther King Jr. on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday simply in the context of, you know, it doesn't matter what you do or who you are, somebody's going to find something negative to say. and. 
sure enough, <laughs> that's how they ended up running with the story. I did find it interesting that that's what he said, but I don't think that it was anywhere near the travesty that they tried to portray it to be. And I think that part of why they did that was because Kyrie makes it easy. It's not like he's necessarily out here um, being the most congenial person all the time. We know that he can be aloof to say, to put it nicely, but the headline was definitely some clickbait. Got me, but I, I read it though. I didn't just let that run and be the narrative, but we'll see how quickly that is able to maintain for him. And wrapping up our NBA segment here, prayers up for Chandler Parsons. He was in a car accident a little while back, and he is now suing the driver of the other vehicle, was charged with the DUI. However, the big news out of this is that Chandler Parsons is dealing with potentially career-ending injuries. They are permanent already, including traumatic brain injury. This is a sad story. Parsons is a guy who's been snake-bitten for much of his in- his career in the NBA, He's dealt with, again, one injury after the other. And I think it's just, it's, it's really tough for him because I, I can't imagine that you'd want to be a player and not be able to be out there doing what you love to do. So present for him, especially with that traumatic brain injury as a football fan, the damage to CTE. Can't imagine the car accident being anywhere near better than that. So just praise up to him and, and hopefully he'll a speedy recovery and he won't be. Hopefully his career won't end, but more importantly, his quality of life doesn't diminish because of this. That's the ultimate wish and hope for anybody in a situation such as this, but especially that one. That's that's a tough, tough thing for anybody to have to deal with. And then lastly, a little local story. The New Orleans Pelicans got Drew Holiday back and they beat the Memphis Grizzlies 126 to 116. And the big thing about this, I don't care about anybody else right now. I've told you my affinity for Brandon Ingram and how I feel like he should be the most improved player. He got 25 again tonight. But Drew Holiday came back 36 points, 12 of 18 from the floor, 7 of 10, 6 rebounds, 2 steals, and a block. Now, he did have 5 turnovers, so you got to clean that up. He was only a plus 8. You don't want to have that stat line to only be a plus 8. But, man, if that wouldn't look great on the west side, with the madhouse on Madison, playing with the Bulls, I don't know what else to tell you. I'm going to write a piece about this for Pippen Ain't Easy. I need the Bulls to go and figure out a way to get him. I'm not sure if the, the Pelicans are even trying to move him now. And I know he would prefer to go to a team that's on the cusp of challenging for some kind of playoff berth. But, man, what really is needed is a guy like that to come and commandeer the ship here in Chicago where you see a lot of times the offense can become listless. He can command the offense. He can complement the offense. He can do everything you need. There's a package that could work out for it, too. But, man. 36 points on his face. Listen, that's a great, great line. Just had to throw that out there because the Bulls are out here getting stomped in the second half due, uh, against the Milwaukee Bucks. Giannis Antetokounmpo had another triple-double. Bulls lost 111-98. I'm, I'm kind of done kind of just uh, ripping them to shreds. Larry Marketing, 8 and 8 on 2 of 11, 0 for 7 from deep. I don't know what else we're trying to get from here. I, I don't know what else people want to see. I've seen all I need to see. I know I'm on the outskirts on that as far as that goes. A lot of people in here in Chicago are still high on Lowry and what he is capable of. I kind of think he is what he is, and last year might have been what he is. The, the the glimpses, sometimes we get caught up in those glimpses of players showing you that stardom, those flashes of stardom, but a lot of times, in my opinion, that's just what they are, flashes. That's that's Inconsistency can be what a player is, and I think that might be what we have with Lowry where he's just never going to be the Robin type guy. He's just a third wheel and that's fine. But 
that's not what you build your team around and that's not what you covet and that's not what you hold on to against the all costs. And I think that you are approaching the point where there have to be realistic conversations about whether or not Lowry is a long-term fixture on this team. I think everybody else can blend in in some way, shape or form. I think Lowry with what they want to do and the way they've constructed the rest of the roster is the last man standing. And I think that he ultimately is where you have the biggest breakdown and everything. Now, injuries obviously are playing a major part in this. And, and it just came out not too long ago that Otto Porter might miss the rest of the season. But Lowry is healthy and still not contributing. And that's almost worse than being injured because Wendell's been in there. He's damn near double-double guaranteed. Otto Porter, you might not like him all the time. He might be overpaid, but he can still defend. He can still shoot. Lowry is not giving you scoring consistently, and he's not giving you rebounds consistently. I'm not sure what we're – and he gave you nothing else. Nothing else on the stat sheet tonight. I'm just not sure what else you're waiting on to see. I know he's still young, but I think that you could get something for him now instead of waiting to see and him ultimately proving to be just this. Like maybe you you play on that arrogance almost from other organizations that they could fix him because I don't know if you if what happens if you hold on he continues to do poorly. So that's going to do it for this episode of Triple Zeros. Follow me on Twitter at Josh D. Buck. Hit up the Facebook page at Triple Zeros, T-R-I-P-L-Z-R-O-S. That's right, Triple Zeros, no E's. Hit up the website at jukesandjumpers.wordpress.com. And the email address is jukesjumps at gmail.com. Of course, read the stuff. Last word on pro football for Bears coverage. Tipping ain't easy for all of the Bulls coverage. And the blog will take care of your needs in between. Until the very next time, for Bulls.